This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to have you in here. Dr. Catherine is in the house as well. Good morning. We haven't seen you in a little while. No, I've been travelling. I'm pleased to be back. Yeah. No, you finally put your feet back on the ground. That's right, yes. Excellent. And Dr. Ailey, because climate's everywhere. It is, all the time. <laughs> no, all it's either time. you or Linda. Yeah, I know. Always got I one know, of you in I here, know, which I is, know. We're, which we're is good. We're everything here yeah. in yeah. Einstein and Gogo. Yeah, no. Well, we did, we did say we were going to do more on climate. And we, I think we're, we're doing a bit more. Yes. We could probably still do more. Everyone can do more, <laughs> but uh, anyway. Um, we've, got, uh, we've got some news coming up for you folks, and then we've got a couple of guests coming in, which will be fascinating. Uh, one's an award winner, so we're pretty excited about that. But we're going to start off with some news. Dr. Ray, do you want to kick us off? I do. It's because I'm sitting in the chair closest this direction, which is why I get to go first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no logic to it. Other yeah, than no, what, yeah, is That's there any logic so awesome. to how I do that? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's really the position we're sitting <laughs> in. But thank you. That's why so, you grabbed that seat. Um, so, uh, uh, the, I, I, I saw a piece of news today and you went, you know what? This is why I hate gardening. So I thought, absolutely, I have to do this piece of news. And it's how dandelion seeds fly. Because, mm. um, you know, I've lived in rental properties. You inherit a lawn or a garden, not exactly well kept or well thought out. And you're sitting there pulling up dandelions from the root. And you go, where do hmm. they all come from? Why do they keep landing? But, um, and this is, this is fascinating. So this is how dandelion seeds fly. Um, and it's quite interesting in that the mode of how a dandelion seed flies, because it can actually go very far distances, is unlike any other plants, is unlike other plant seeds, and pretty much unlike the basic ways we think you can fly. Hmm. So, first of all, if you've ever seen a dandelion seed, you'll notice it's missing what we call the main component to fly. Wings. Yep. Maple seeds and insects. And, and so, actually, how wings work is they create lift. Now, not going into too many of the details... Basically, you're getting a slightly higher pressure. You get a, you get lift, which is a higher pressure above the wing, but it's really about where the air is going and where you're putting thrust. And in that process of the air going over the wing, you create these vortices or turbulent eddies, and they that's basically what gives you the pressure. And 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 when we fly these vortices, we really try to hang on to them. We uh, we try to minimize the wake that comes off a plane or a ship. And that's really about trying to control those vortices and keep them in contact with the wing, and that's how we give lift. A dandelion, on the other hand, makes vortices, but they're not really in contact with the dandelion seed. And, and so this is the weird part. So because of its very airy and porous shape, when it flies around, it creates a vortice, but it's not actually attached or in contact with the dandelion seed. It's kind of sitting above it and kind of almost like a, a floating halo, and it's this drag that keeps it up. Now, people have speculated about this time of flight, but they never thought it was possible in practice. Hmm. And so this, this research, this group from Edinburgh did their, in aerodynamics studied this the way you study a wing. They have an air tunnel, but they put dandelion seeds in a vertical air tunnel, and so they were able to track the fluid flow and watch it sink and actually model this. And then, of course, they made the synthetic dandelion seed, basically a, a, a silica disc with the right porosity to confirm that happens. And they kind of went, oh, my gosh, we've never seen this before. That We've been figuring out how – I'll have one quote. We can make planes go up Mach 9, but we never thought of this as a way to make things fly. And so – it, it, it seems unstable for most of the designs we have, but for very lightweight systems that are very porous, the idea of keeping, it's called an unattached flow or an unattached vortices, is a way that 
the dandelion itself has evolved to create this kind of vortex or low pressure pocket just above it to keep it afloat as it moves around. Hmm. Can't do it with wings. Hmm. So better than a balloon. Yeah, you know, and, and it's different than a balloon or a parachute because that traps air. This basically yeah. keeps a, a little. Keeps neg- above it. It's like the opposite. Yeah, it almost. keeps a little negative mm. pressure pocket mm. just above it. Mm. Mm. Imagine if you were sitting there and all your hair was getting sucked up. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Very mm. interesting. Mm. Dr. Catherine, what do you got for us? Dr. Shane, I've been reading this week uh, about a really interesting relationship between our sense of smell and ability to navigate. Okay. So there's, um, and this is some research that's come out of Canada. So very recently there's been this hypothesis that the primary function of smell actually evolved to assist us with navigation. And this hypothesis is called olfactory spatial hypothesis. Hmm. And the background to this hypothesis and why we're, we're sort of coming to understand this this theory is a couple of things. The first thing is that in mammals, there is a relationship between the olfactory bulb or its equivalent uh, to do with smell and the size of the hippocampus in the brain, which is to do with spatial memory and navigation. And also a relationship between the size of that and the need for the animals to be able to navigate, so things like birds and reptiles. The second thing is that there is uh, the fact that all animals use chemical cues to navigate to be able to to obtain food and to to, um, go away from predators, whereas many of those animals actually don't have good vision or hearing. Mm, So these things suggest that potentially our our sense of smell has developed or evolved to assist in navigation, but it hasn't been closely studied before. So in this research out of Canada, they included 57 young adults and they were testing this thought, well, if if in fact sensory smell has evolved for navigation, our performance should be better in terms of sense of smell and navigation. And so they tested this. So they asked these adults to do a task using a computer screen and it was a sort of a virtual environment uh, testing our spatial memory, which is a part of navigation, which really looks at how people navigate in terms of the relationship between buildings in the environment. So they had to do these computer games and it rated their performance Mm. and then they also had to do some tests around smell so they were asked to smell 40 different uh, pens uh, felt tip pens with different odors and then they had to um, choose four words sounds like they'd all be high at the end of that (laughs) well yes And, yeah. and identify four words that matched that smell. So these are quite complex tasks. Yeah. But basically, and then they also studied their brains. So some of the findings out of this that we've, we've come to realise now is the first one is that performance in navigation using that spatial memory was linked to performance with the smell task. So the people that perform better perform better at both tasks. Yeah. The second thing is they found a relationship between the size of the areas of the brain that are related to, to smell and navigation. And again, those people perform better. And thirdly, the last finding, which is really important, in terms of people who have, uh, have impairments is that people that had impairments in these aspects of the brain, such as the hippocampus, um, they had poorer performance in smell and navigation. So it's, it's all lending towards this evolution of potentially why we have this sense of smell. Hmm. So uh, when I first heard this, I thought when, they, when you said they were going to test them, I thought they were going to put them in two different mazes and make them wear nose plugs for one of them. <laughs> I was like, yes! that yeah. But there's a there's a correlation between their ability to smell and their ability to navigate but is there any speculation about how the ability to smell might help 
navigate, or is that not what they're studying? They're just saying parts of your brain that are bigger. Yeah, exactly. They're looking at this correlation to begin with. So they're looking at the performance uh, relationship between the performance and the brain sort of matter and size. But that would certainly be the next step is, is why is it in, in, in fact that the case? Well, I can tell you that my ability to navigate increases exponentially if I smell a chocolate muffin. So, <laughs> <you know. laughs> I'm not sure that's quite what, what we're talking about. Well. <laughs> but it's, um, I mean, this is fascinating because... I suspect this could be one of those correlations that that long ago for certain species was really important, but as our eyesight and hearing and other things have, you know, adapted and become far better, we no longer use them. And the second you started talking about this, it reminded me of a story... I read probably five, oh God, five, ten years ago. It's probably 15, actually, but, you know, who, who cares, um, around sharks and how sharks navigate. And, you know, and we all came from the ocean at some point, but, you know, sharks navigate using essentially smell between their two nostrils. And one of the sharks that is fastest at seeking its prey is the hammerhead shark. And there's a really interesting, you know, adaptation there where its two nostrils are as far apart as possible so that it can triangulate on where its prey's location is um, in much the same way as you know we would triangulate you know um, where a radio transmission came from by looking at two points of uh, where we might receive it so you know these sharks can move really quickly because they can work out where they go so you know for them navigation and and smell are just one and the same i mean that's how they how they find their prey so you, you wonder how how this has sort of evolved i mean for us we don't think of it that way anymore because our eyesight's so good and our GPS on their phones is so good, but, but, you know, there's a whole, as you say, birds and other creatures that, you know, still have, you know, less capabilities, maybe are still using it in a far more sophisticated way. And the one thing that immediately comes to mind for me is the issue of bushfires and how many animals are so aware of the fact that they need to go somewhere else so early on, uh, you know, and, and, and they know what direction to not go in. You know, you rarely see them, you don't see birds heading towards a bushfire. So they're able to navigate the location of that relative to their position. So it's it's, very clever. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's also interesting when you think about when humans lose one aspect. So we know people who have vision impairments or hearing Mm. impairments, their sense of smell can be extremely strong. Mm. Um, So when you actually, it it, it does come back to that importance of smell, and maybe for for some people, um, it's uh, it's much more powerful. Yeah, or at least their their ability to focus on it. Absolutely. I mean, their, their sense of smell probably hasn't changed at all, but their ability to focus on that is probably far, yeah, far yeah. more substantial. Yeah, Dr. Ailey, can you beat that? Well, I don't know <laughs> if I can beat it, but I, I'm going to go on the... Well, I was going to use an analogy for food, so I'm on the food theme. I think I'm hungry this morning. You're hungry? Like, I don't yeah. know. But um, I'm going to talk about Earth's gooey, chewy centre. No, it's not gooey and chewy. It's more gooey and chewy than we thought, though, really? which is interesting. So there's a new study um, out of ANU. Uh, this week, so this is this is a boon for Australian scientists, Australian geologists, actually looking at the Earth's um, inner core. So the way the Earth is kind of vaguely constructed is that you know for for decades now, um, geologists have theorised that there's a basically a solid inner core and then a liquid inner core and then the mantle and the crust. Now this solid inner core is really really important. Um, there's been you know, theories flying around for a while that it's it's kind of like solid iron and it's, it's this that kind of creates a bit of a dynamo effect and creates our Earth's magnetic field, which is really, really important because it means that, you know, harmful solar rays that bombard the Earth basically get deflected and we stay mm. nice and safe and snug here and, on the surface. And, and our atmosphere stays And our yeah, atmosphere, yeah, which that's is right, most exactly. important. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. Because otherwise we wouldn't really have an atmosphere because it would all have been blown away. Like Mars. Yes, indeed. Mm. Um, so the Earth's magnetic field is really important. But, you know, basically the point is we can't actually drill down to the centre of the Earth because and actually test this, right? We just can't. It's, it's just a little bit too far. Mm. So um, scientists can basically use um, ideas about how uh, waves travel through rock and through the liquid parts of of the earth and what by waves i mean like caused by things like earthquakes earthquakes right yep. so these seismic waves travel through and they can kind of tell things about uh what's in the center of the earth by looking at these um but so far people haven't quite been able to detect exactly what the Earth's core is made of because the particular type of waves that travel through the Earth's core are actually super, super difficult to detect. Mm. And so up until now, apparently what they've been doing is looking at um, these you know, these waves when big earthquakes happen and, and trying to infer what's, what's in the centre, but, you know, it's really, really difficult to see. So what these scientists at ANU did was basically instead of looking when an earthquake happens, they looked kind of immediately after an earthquake happens. So instead of looking at these these seismic waves that happen um, at the time of the earthquake, they waited to about three to ten hours after and looked at basically the jiggles and wiggles that occurred not only at one point across the earth, but at pairs of sensors on different parts of the earth. And they did this at pairs everywhere because there's a huge um, seismometer network around the, the yeah, world. I don't know yeah. if people have ever seen it, but thousands and thousands of have you, have you got the app? Yeah, it's have fantastic. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the USGS. App? Yeah, there's an earthquake app and the, the um, United States Geological Survey have a great website as well where you can look at I, all these. I, I was a bit obsessed with this app for a while. I, I think people he's obsessed remember. with it now. He's, he's looking at it right now to see where earthquakes no, I mean, have I mean uh, I'm pulling it up and I can tell you that in... In uh, Enterprise Nevada, the one minute ago, there was a 1.6 magnitude earthquake. Well, there you go. See? And right before that, there was one in Kermanishnau in, um, yeah, uh, 3.10, <laughs> uh, uh, 1.4 in Alaska right before that. This app there you was, go. Yeah. I was obsessed with this app for a while. Yeah. I'd just watch Wait, it. Admitting you have a problem. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's the best step. That's right. But look, these guys were looking at really, really big earthquakes. So they were looking at 7.3 plus because mm. this is where you're going to see. Um, so you've got to watch that for a while waves. to get yeah, one of those. That's right. You do have it's to watch It's kind of like Tetzlo, though. That's right. But they, yeah. they looked at these back to kind of the year 2000 and they took a whole bunch of these earthquakes and they looked at them. And what they were able to see if they looked at these pairs of sensors after the fact of the earthquake rather than during the earthquake, was they were able to see these tiny little whispers of these waves that mm. occur in the Earth's <coughs> core, right? And basically... The way that these waves move, the speed at which these waves move, gives an idea of the elasticity of the core, which gives us an idea of the material that is within the core. Okay, and so the hypotheses that had been put forward so far was that the core, um, you know, was made of, of iron and all this kind of stuff. Now, that's still probably the leading hypothesis, but this new study shows that actually the speed at which those waves move through the centre of the Earth is a bit slower than we thought, by yeah. about 2.5%. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but what that means is that the elasticity of the core is a bit different to what they thought, and they say it's more consistent with stuff like gold and platinum. So this could kind of change ideas about how we think of the Earth's core. Now, it confirmed that uh, the Earth's core is solid, um, they do think it's solid, but it's a little less solid than we thought. It's a little bit gooey. Think of it like a, you know, a nice little 
gooey chocolate centre. I don't know. Again, <laughs> back to the, the food, food theme. theme. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so this is yeah. really interesting because for the first time, for the very first time, scientists have actually been able to effectively see in, mm. you know, not not by drilling, but by looking at these waves, see what the Earth's core is made of. And they've confirmed that the hypothesis is so far correct. It looks like it is solid, but a little less solid than we thought. Mm. That's really cool stuff. Yeah. That's really cool. Do they have a feel for how a mostly iron block of anything should behave at that temperature and pressure? I mean, Well, that's the, other, that's the other thing. And, and that, so one of the outcomes from this study is you're exactly right, Ray. Like this, this is... Um, these we're talking about such high pressures and high temperatures like we're talking about you know super super hot this mm. core and, and, right? it, and it's the pressure is why it's even a solid that's right and i mean that's just a state of matter that i'm, I'm not sure it was easy to simulate yeah that's pretty Especially crazy. That big yeah. as well yeah, yeah. It's but, really this, a big object. but the, the interesting thing they were talking <clears> about this this finding being really important for understanding things like the age of the earth um you know the rate at which the core is solidifying more and more um you know all this stuff mm. Yeah, which is really interesting. Cool. I love, too, the the scenario where, you know, the science here is not overly complicated in terms of the wave theory. So, like, I mean, we do this, you know, people see this every day when they go and get an ultrasound or something where you send waves into the body and those waves get reflected by certain things. And as a result, you can build up a picture with some, you know, funky software of what you're seeing inside. And we see this when people go for their examinations when they're pregnant or they have, you know, a busted... Mm -hmm whatever or you know all sorts all sorts of things you you get ultrasounds but in this case you know you can't just switch the ultrasound on you've got to wait for an earthquake that's right to occur before exactly. the actual instrument you're using works and it's got to be in the right spot and that's you've right. got to have the detectors where you need them that's there's right. a whole other things that need to come into play for this sort of natural version of the ultrasound that's to right actually and that's work. that's was that was the novel thing about this study and why it was so interesting was because for the first time as you say you know they kind of looked at everything at once and looked mm. at these pairs which takes a huge amount of analysis analysis to do which mm. is you know why it's taken so long to do but it obviously gives us a really interesting picture and a new yeah. you know a new view of the core of the earth and and how our earth actually works yeah yeah it's fascinating um well speaking of uh, big projects one of the things i just wanted to mention because it's not going to happen for a couple of years but it's only a couple of years away which is pretty exciting but um china's really eager at the moment to save some money uh, and they want to save 170 million US dollars a year by reducing the amount of power that they use to light some of the particular provinces. And they're starting off with just one of their cities. And there's a there's a group there called the Tianfu New Area Science Society that is looking to put up what they are calling, wait for it, folks, an artificial moon. That's wow. not a moon, it's a space station. We, <laughs> we didn't Cobra do this in the G.I. Joe cartoon yeah, in I the so, 80s. I think so. Uh, but so basically the idea here is that they're going to put up a, a highly reflective object into orbit above a certain city and the reflection of you've got to remember that because it's sitting above the um well above the earth it will still be in sunlight and at the right orientation they can reflect that sunlight down onto an area that works out to be about 50 square kilometers so that's that's pretty big actually you know it's not the size of melbourne but it's pretty big and it will be about five uh sorry about eight times the brightness of the moon and the concept here is that you wouldn't have to have street lights because this artificial moon would be a very big bright light in the sky all night so it's a it's an interesting um it's an interesting concept how how does that go for i mean you know all sorts of animals and you know things. i don't worry about that 
Sorry about that. I mean, the ecological it, it, consequences of this. I mean, you know, the fact that the moon has phases and it sometimes gets dark and sometimes yeah, gets light. And yeah. I know there's been all sorts of studies looking at the effects of artificial light on local ecosystems. Well, it, it is, it what is about interesting. something that's eight times the brightness of the moon? I yeah, mean. I mean, for me, as an amateur astronomer, I wouldn't be overly happy with something eight times... I mean, when the moon is up, if you're an amateur astronomer and you're trying to look at anything but the moon, um, it sucks big time. So if you had something eight times as bright permanently in the sky, you pretty much just throw your telescope out. That, that would not work. But um, there's, there are so many animals and species, actually, that interact um, with the light from the moon. And as you say, the phases alien and how that works for them is very important. So what that would look like long term... now. They, they can restrict the range over the, this thing works. So I suspect it will only work over a built-up area because it's relatively small. But they want to put up more than one. They're looking at um, putting up uh, another three in 2022. So there'll be artificial moons everywhere in China. I'm not sure exactly what that would look like from the ground, but, you know, you might be able to see a few moons. I, I want to know whether they're going to put some sort of, um, sort of aspect picture to it you know will it, will it be will it just be yeah. like a like a you know like the sun where it's just you yeah. know it's just all oh, it looks the same if you're lucky you can see a sunspot um but the moon of course has a lot of um a lot of real structure to it when you look at it which is pretty cool so i'm wondering whether they'll you know use it for advertisements or you know, like it might be something <laughs> will there be a coca-cola ad on there i, I don't know but anyway uh, we shall keep uh, a watch on that one because, um, yeah, artificial moons. I think uh, it's getting into that geoengineering sort of space. Really changing the term sciences everywhere. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not sure we necessarily call that science. <laughs> science got it there, but then it's just might be damn annoying. But yeah. um, I don't know. It'd be like uh, living at the North Pole, right? You just never mm. sleep. Um, it could be a bit disturbing for Eight people. Eight times the brightness. That's bright. Well, the moon's bright. Yeah. I mean, if, you, if you've got a full moon I would have thought that outside, would be the moon's kind bright. of like a, a really, really cloudy day. Like really, yeah. really cloudy day. Yeah. So I think um, – and this is to remove streetlights entirely. So that's, yep. that's the concept. I'm not sure whether they can turn it off. I, I, mm. You know, I, I'm not sure if it's something where, the, you know, you send up a little signal and it kind of – I don't know. Turns all, around. Turns around or uh, – <laughs> yeah, something like that. But it sounds to me like um, – it's a permanent big piece of aluminium foil that's going to be shining bright on a whole lot of people down in this particular city in China. Good luck to you, folks. Um, you may need to also put up an artificial blind, yes. <laughs> which you can draw. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back in just a moment, folks, with our first guest for today. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Dr. Cornelia Landersdorfer. She is a senior lecturer from the Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at Monash University. Cornelia, you were on the show a couple of years ago, so welcome back. Thank you very much. It's good to have you. Now, um, we've got you on in particular. Well, we're going to talk about your work, but because you uh, were fortunate this week to win one of the Georgina Sweet Awards um, for, I think, 25 $25,000? Wow. Do you get to spend that on whatever you want? That is, yeah, to support the research yep. of my team. Yeah. So not whatever you not, want. Not, not quite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No new car. <laughs> no, but that's what I want most, is to <laughs> well, <laughs> support I mean, our research. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Now, tell us a bit about this award, because it's a, a, it's a very particular award that was set up a few years ago, and it's to support Australian female researchers. So what, what did you have to do to win, and what were the criteria? Yes, so that's an award set up by Professor Leanne Tilly as mm-hmm. part of her Australian Research Council Laureate Fellowship in order to support women in science in Australia. And that's really, um, yeah, based on 
our quantitative biomedical research. So mm-hmm. basically the type of research we are doing, how has this impacted on, let's say, patient treatments and on the scientific community, mm-hmm. as well as a research vision. So basically, what is it that this award will make us, uh, enable us to do, which otherwise we wouldn't be mm-hmm. able to? Okay. And how many do they give out each year? So it's three awards, three awards. each year. Okay. Um, it's been going for a few years now, hasn't it? Like... Uh, Three or four years, I think. Yes, it's been the third year. Third year, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, fantastic. Now, um, with the and do you have to do anything else as part of the award? Like, do you become an ambassador for women in research, or do you have to give talks or anything like that? Yes, I mean the idea is to be an ambassador for women in science, and then also to yeah, basically have a bit of a snowball effect, so that we can. ourselves also support um, junior women in science as well. So, for example, I've got three female PhD students. Two of them have care responsibilities. Yep. And can you spend the money helping them in in that regard, or does it have to be specifically research? So um, it can be research, or it can be, for example, support to go to conferences. Yep. Okay, well, that sounds good. Now, your area of expertise and, and work is really around to the new drugs and, um, in particular, antibiotics. So I thought what I wanted to do with you is explore a little bit about how antibiotics actually work. Because I think one of the things that I always get confused about is, you know, we're dealing with our biological systems, but we put what seems like a dead pill into our guts where there's a whole of acid. Can you, how does this work? I mean, how do antibiotics... How do we put antibiotics into a into a pill form and then have them sort of work how does that all function so if we use antibiotics into a pill form um as you've mentioned they need to pass through the stomach they need the drug needs to be able to withstand the acid and then in the gut also the drug would need to be able to pass through the membrane in the gut in order to get into the portal vein and then Also, the drug would need to um, be able to bypass the liver enzymes. It needs Mm. to get through the portal vein and then finally arrive in the the bloodstream, in the general circulation. So um, this doesn't work well for all drugs. So that's why for some antibiotics, we give them as infusions where they go directly into the bloodstream. And then once they're in the bloodstream, if the infection is in the blood, then the antibiotic would have reached the target. But then a lot of infections aren't. So, for example, pneumonia, you've got the infections in your lung, so you need to get there, or even infections, um, like infections in the bone. So that's even mm. more difficult for the antibiotic to get there. And, and sort of back it up a little bit here in terms of what the antibiotic is. I mean, I know in, in the case of my immune system, my immune system creates particular chemicals to fight various bacteria i mean how how does the antibiotic work differently or is it just those chemicals already made i mean what's 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 happening so um it really depends on the type of the antibiotic Mm -hmm. so some antibiotics they interact with the bacterial outer membrane so that's basically a membrane that certain bacteria have to protect themselves from influences so they might be able to destroy the membrane Some other bacteria might interfere with the bacterial replication and the cell wall. And again, other antibiotics might interfere with the the genome of the the bacterium. Hmm. 
Okay, so there's quite a variation, and, and similarly, there's a variation in the the quantity and frequency with which we take these tablets. I mean, the, the, we, we were saying in the green room earlier when we were chatting that sometimes I take one pill a day, and there might be five over a course of five days. Other times, it's three or four a day. Um, why is there that difference? And and is the one pill a day sort of effective? It sounds like it's sort of it, it's similar to you know when someone's on insulin for diabetes. It seems as though the release of insulin is a really poor way to treat diabetes compared to what the body would naturally do, which is a sustained release throughout the day. So, yes, I mean, that depends on a number of factors, actually. So one factor is how how quickly does the body eliminate the antibiotic? Because mm. for certain antibiotics, they get eliminated quickly through the kidneys. So, they con- so after we take one pill or we get one infusion, the concentrations wear off very quickly. So this might be a factor where we might have to give another one more quickly, mm-hmm. but then it also depends on how the antibiotic acts, because some antibiotics quickly kill the bacteria, so with one dose, we can get a rid of a lot of the bacteria. But then other antibiotics, we need to have a certain concentration for a long time, or ideally constantly, because they don't act that quickly. And then, again, it depends on the resistance, because mm. with some antibiotics... If bacteria are exposed to a certain concentration for a long time, the bacteria are pretty smart in, let's say, upregulating some pumps that can get the antibiotic again back out of the system. And then again, it depends on toxicity because some antibiotics might um, they might end up accumulating in the kidneys. Right. Yeah. So it's a lot of different factors yeah. that we need to optimize. Yeah. So when you mentioned before uh, the antibiotics might be uh, delivered via a pill or infused and then they need to travel, if I understood correctly, through the bloodstream to reach where the infection is, such as the lung or a bone, how do you ensure it actually reaches that point? Because it seems like a long way to travel uh, as opposed to just being spread spread throughout the entire body. Yes, that's a very good question. So it does depend a bit on the characteristics of the antibiotics because some are able to spread more quickly in the body. But really, yeah, we need to measure, ideally we need to measure the concentrations in the lung. And for example, something can be done um, where the so-called epithelial lining fluid in the lung can be measured through a bronchoscopy. So that's the ideal way of ensuring it. Mm. And is there potential harm to elsewhere in the body if the antibiotics are travelling to other areas that are perfectly fine? Yes, so for example, as mentioned, the kidneys or also the inner ear are examples of other organs where there is too much of the antibiotic there, there could be a risk of toxicity. So we need to pretty much balance these factors as well. It's interesting stuff. Cornelia, what, what specifically in this area are you working on in your lab? Because um, you know, obviously antibiotics are something that you, you hear all the time, we're running out of them, and all the time that we shouldn't use too many of them, and there's all, all these issues of antibiotics, but you know they've, they've done an incredible job over the years. So what are you specifically looking at in your lab? So we are specifically looking at how we can use the precious antibiotics that we've got in the best possible way to extend mm-hmm. their lifetime and to keep the activity also for the future generations, as well as applying these approaches we are developing for the optimized use to the new antibiotics that become available. Because if we get a new antibiotic, and they are just used sort of a bit randomly or empirically, it, resistance develops very quickly, and we want to avoid that. Mm. 
Yeah, 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 go ahead. Yeah. So basically what we are doing is we've got a laboratory where we study bacteria. So we've got patient samples of bacteria and we expose them to the concentrations, how they change over time in a patient. So basically it's as if the bacteria was in a patient and is exposed to concentrations of an antibiotic, let's say an infusion three times daily. Mm-hmm. Then in the lab we can see what happens. Are they becoming resistant? What are the mechanisms of resistance? And how should we optimize this dosing in order to prevent the resistance, maximize the bacterial killing, and maybe we need to add a second antibiotic as well oftentimes. Mm. Do, do you, just before we let you go, do, do you have a feel at the moment for just how bad we're getting this? It seems as though we're just taking a shotgun approach to the use of antibiotics. And do, do you have a feeling for just how far from optimization we are? Are we sort of at 10% of what would be an optimum use of antibiotics for given conditions? Or? Well, in terms of the optimum use, I mean, there's a lot of research um, to be done and also translation into practice. And we need to really do that now and, and really make more and more efforts because otherwise the bacteria are a lot quicker than us mm. in order to develop resistance. So there's certainly a, a lot of need in, in further developing those optimized approaches and then also get it translated to be used in the mm. clinic. And we've shown some examples that it works, yep. but you just need the more widespread use of this approach. Sounds like a good plan. Cornelia, uh, congratulations again on winning the Georgina Swoyle Award. I uh, hope you spend the money wisely with your research lab. Thanks for coming back and chatting to us and we hope you sort this antibiotic stuff out for all of us. Thank you very much. We're going to take a break for some more music, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're going to be talking a bit more about uh, the immune system, actually, but from the other side uh, of the immune system itself. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. All right, we're back. Uh, I think everyone's under control here. We're just having a few <laughs> moments here in the in the break, folks. Uh, right through the continuity equation at me. Absolutely. It was rolled up. Anyway, uh, uh. in the studio with us now is Dr. Kylie Quinn. She is a research fellow in Professor Nicole Legruta's lab at Monash University. Kylie, welcome to the studio of Triple R. Thanks very much, Dr. Shang. It's great to have you here. Uh, we want to well, there's so many questions I have for you because you, you work on the immune system. It's interesting because our last guest, we were talking about antibiotics, but this is about the immune system and how it works mm. on its own, really. Uh, one of the things I wasn't aware of that you sent through in your material to us is the idea that there are different types of these killer T cells that we have in our body and they and they sort of wear off in their proficiency in different ways as we age. Can you talk us through these these three types and how that works? Absolutely. Um, so I guess our interest is um, is in a particular type of immune cell called these killer T cells, and they do exactly what their name suggests, in that they um, sort of distribute throughout the body, find virally infected cells and cancerous cells, and they kill those cells. Um, but uh, as we get older. Um, we sort of find that our rates of infection with viral infections and, and cancers skyrocket. Um, and part of the issue is that we have a decline in the, the function of these CD8 killer T cells. And so they're no longer able to control viral infections and cancers, and so that leaves us very vulnerable to these things. Before you go on there, yeah. can, I, can I just clarify something? So I have cancer floating around my body all the time. Is, yeah. that, is that right? So all the, when I'm healthy... 
Yeah. And and these cells are just cleaning it up and making sure it doesn't become problematic. Is that is that right? Yeah. So um, they've done sort of mathematical models which have shown that um, yeah, if you if you don't have these cells around, um, then that's a significant risk factor mm. for emergence of cancer. And absolutely, you've got um, cells throughout your body are sort of making mistakes and right. uh, changing changing their nature and could sort of be on the way to becoming cancerous. And and these killer T cells are able to to mop that up, knock them out before they cause problems. Right. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Sure. Um, so I guess uh, we're really interested in how aging impacts on these killer T cells, um, and one of the really important things that these cells have to do uh, is divide, and they divide at incredibly high rates. So it's one of the highest highest rates of division of any cell in your body. So. I, I guess um, you know that's an, a really po- important feature because uh, a CD8 T cell is quite specific, so it will only recognise a particular infection or a particular cancer, um, and so they start at actually incredibly rare frequencies. They're sort of one in a million cells uh, circulating around yeah. your body, and so they have to divide up to incredibly high numbers to be effective. To, you know, to generate an army of sufficient magnitude to con- control yeah. um, as an infection or a cancerous outgrowth um, and so that's what we measured we we were interested in in the rate of division of these killer t-cells and how that was impacted by aging um, and so when we did that we found that these two different populations emerged um, so we call one of them uh, a true naive cell so they really haven't seen anything um, out there in the the big wide world that well they haven't seen their their infection or a cancer that they react against um, and then the other cell type that we found is a, what we call a virtual memory cell so they're they're almost you know they're a little bit educated they've seen seen some right. stuff right but they haven't seen their particular infection yet and what we found um, is that these true naive cells um, they retain their ability to divide quite well mm-hmm. so they're still they're still in the game they're still quite functional as we're getting older as we get yep. older yeah yep. but their numbers drop off and All that's right. that's the problem um, so on the other sort of side so of things ask, how, does, yeah. how does that work I mean it's, if, it would seem to me as though if they can still divide and replicate really well yeah. why, why are their numbers dropping off they just don't have the uh, so the aging environment changes a lot. Sort mm-hmm. of the the supporting cast of actors, the the cells within our immune system that sort of support the survival of other oh, cells. Okay. Right. Um, so they make they, they make them, but they die bits die off that we need. Yeah. yeah. So their their little niche, their little happy home is is yep. no longer there, and so these cells these cells die off. Okay. So we've got one group that does does good at replication, but they don't hang around. Exactly. And the other group? The other group, these virtual memory cells, they're sort of, um, you know, over the course of ageing, it seems like they've seen some stuff, they've experienced some stuff, um, and that allows them to survive really well. They're, they can survive in this hostile aged environment, but their abil- ability to divide drops off substantially. Ah. So we're losing the ones that we want, and we're keeping the ones which are... Not, not so, so good. helpful. Yeah. yeah. So this, um, I mean, one of the things that I don't quite understand, maybe you can explain it to me. Sure. Uh, you know, as I'm getting older, it's becoming more interesting to me. Mm. What, what is aging? I mean, what, what's, <laughs> I mean, it, it's always been curious to me, given the way our cells work. Yeah. I mean, you know, if I have a skin cell when I'm 70, uh, compared to when I have a, a skin cell when I'm 20, what is the difference between those two cells? Does one just not work well or you know, what's aging? 
from a biological perspective, that's a really interesting question. And I, we don't have a single answer for that. Um, so I think in terms, you know, we know the effects of ageing. We all feel ageing. We can see ageing. Um, but in terms of a, a specific cell, it's it's... We can see the hallmarks of it and the effects mm. of it and sense of, um, you know, age cells have more damage to their DNA. Um, they have, and they're not as able to sort of fix that because they also have damage to their proteins. So their proteins are less functional and enzymes are less efficient. Uh, we also have damage to our mitochondria. So those are the, the energy powerhouses to our cells. And so um, all of that means these cells mm. are less efficient. It compromises the ability of stem cells to sort of renew tissues. Um, but... In terms of the actual mechanism that causes ageing, for years people have been searching for this one singular mechanism. You know, Mm. you can kind of think about it as if it were a trigger that sort of flips a switch in a cell and then that cell is going to march towards ageing and inevitability of ageing and that that will inevitably result in disease, age-related disease. But we're now understanding that there's not one switch. Um, you know, that was a real search for, um, I guess, the fountain of youth and immortality. Is there this one switch that we can stop? But uh, what we're now realising is there's, there's multiple triggers, there's multiple switches. They can differ between different tissues. And some of those switches, you know, contribute to ageing itself, but some of those switches are responsible for age-related disease. Mm-hmm. So if we stop those triggers... Then, then we can extend something we call it health span. So the span of your life where you're really healthy. healthy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's really becoming the uh, a major target of uh, biology of aging. Uh, our research is is not to extend lifespan. We're doing yeah, pretty we're, well we've in done that, that regard. We've done that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but what we want to do is make people healthier for longer. Yeah. And, you know, able to contribute and be part of society for much longer. Yeah. Now with. With these two particular types of T cells that you've been looking at and how yeah. they they are different, it seems to me as though once you you sorted this out, yeah. that you would ho- well, I'm guessing you would hope that you can sort of increase the proficiency of the ones who don't do much and increase the number of the ones that do a lot but they're in smaller number. And ha- how would you go about that? Yeah, you must have been reading my grant applications because yes, that's well, exactly secretly, what I, <laughs> secretly I sent every grant application in the country. Oh gosh, um, okay. and I only remember three of them a year but <laughs> lucky you yeah no that's that's exactly what we're aiming to do so we want to um understand how we might be able to target these more functional true naive cells with vaccines mm. um how we can recruit them better into immune responses um and these virtual memory cells the the less functional guys we kind of have two avenues of a, an, an approach with these guys we can we can either try and get rid of them and hope that that improves the response from the other cells of the immune response because they might have a suppressive role, um, or we can try and revert their functionality hmm. and rejuvenate them. So uh, I was trying to understand the, the concept of aging here, and if our immune system, when we're, we're younger, goes around and cleans up a lot of misfires and cells and different problems we yeah. have, if we're exposed to more risk factors, more things that can make cells misfire, and our immune system functions well where we're young but has to respond to a lot more problems, misfires in cells, maybe from our environment, maybe we're living in an unlucky part of the world or we've had chemical lived in a place with chemical runoff our whole lives. Does that make our immune system age faster? 
<laughs> that's a very good question. Um, that's the idea at the moment, yeah. So um, I guess the idea is that if you have a damaged cell, that cell does a number of things. It sort of stops its own division, uh, but it also sends out a whole lot of inflammatory messages to the immune system to tell immune cells to come to that site and clear it, get rid of it. Um, that process becomes less efficient um, as, as you get older. And so you, you kind of enter this state of chronic inflammation with age. Uh, it's actually got a cool name called, uh, we call it inflammaging. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sounds insulting. Doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> we're all getting a bit inflammaged. Um, so uh, as we get older, we have this age-driven uh, inflammation which causes premature ageing of our immune cells. And we see that in conditions with, with high inflammation, such as obesity, um, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, also, patients who have HIV, which is well-controlled uh, with, um, with antiretrovirals nowadays, but they can live for extended periods of time with exposure to virus all the time. Um, mm. And that prematurely ages their immune system as so, well. So if, yeah. if I could find an uh, anti-inflammatory that didn't totally destroy my kidneys, yeah. you know, I mean, is, is this like the, the new version of aspirin? for? It's, yeah, so there was a recent trial, um, the Asprey trial here in Melbourne, actually. Right. Um, it was a huge international trial where they, they tracked uh, the healthy elderly for a period of time and they had patients who were either receiving aspirin, what mm. we call prophylactically, sort of just every day, um, and those who didn't. And they were looking for signals of, of difference in terms of their uh, cognitive ability and, and so on. Um, and un unfortunately, I think the, the Asprey trial uh, came out recently and uh, it looks like there, there wasn't a big advantage of, of having this chronic uh, aspirin uh, treatment. But, you know, mm. whether that... Um, whether there are other inflammatory, uh, anti-inflammatories that you can use mm. that, that could be of interest for the future. Kylie, we're not done with you yet, but we have to play <laughs> a couple of station announcements. So we're going to take a short break. Are you happy to stick around? Love to. Excellent. Folks, uh, here's some important stuff from Triple R. We'll be back in just a moment. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, you are listening to Triple R, folks. Uh, in the studio, we've still got uh, Dr. Kylie Quinn from Monash University. We're talking about the immune system, and uh, we had too many questions, so we had to we couldn't let it go. <laughs> Dr. Ailey. thanks. Well, I just wanted to ask about aspects of the. Um, you were talking about aspects of the external environment, but aspects of the internal environment as well. And you were talking about. Um, I think you called them the virtual memory mm. T cells, yeah. um, and how um, as we age, the the in the environment becomes such that they lose their function or, or yeah. their function reduces. Yeah. So have you been able to isolate what it is about the aspects of the internal aged environment that, that causes them to lose their function or is that something? Yeah, it's um, so we, we don't have a, a definitive answer, but we have our suspects um, and it is kind of tied in with the inflammatory the idea of inflammation. So these particular cells express a receptor on their surface which, which makes them exquisitely sensitive to some of those inflammatory signals. Um, we did in, in the same um, sort of paper that we, we published on this, uh, we did sort of do these experiments where we took cells from a young mouse 
transferred them into an aged mouse and recovered them back out and had a look at their ability to divide. Um, And that certainly showed us that simply exposure to that aged environment was enough to stop that division potential. So, um, you know, there's something in that aged environment which is really slowing things down. Um, And we also did the reverse, which I got quite excited about at the time, where we took cells from an aged mouse and put it into a young mouse. Um, And we hoped to see this rejuvenation of these aged cells. Um, And this was really exciting because, um, you know, at the same time, there's been these studies where um, they're transferring serum from from young mice into aged mice and seeing recovery of function in neuronal cells and muscle cells. Um, There's actually a clinical trial going on right now with a company called Ambrosia where they're transferring plasma from young individuals to aged individuals. Yeah, that sounds good. That's why you have have kids. And they name themselves Ambrosia. Yes. (laughs) That's good. Yeah, so so we did the same. Um, But we didn't see any recovery of function in our virtual memory cells, so it's not that simple with immune cells. And it could be because they're so sensitive to information. So, so just before we go, I just want to throw something out there and, and get your reflection on it. And this, this could just be your next grant application. But yeah, how, do, how do we know, like, you've been talking about how we know that in the aged environment, these immune cells don't work as well. Mm-hmm. How do we know it's not the other way around? How do we know that the environment that has been created by a, a poorer response from the immune cells then, then is causing all these problems because I know with mm. when people get short sighted, for example, the eye corrects for short sightedness by becoming more short sighted. Mm. There's this error in there. How do we know it isn't the other way around in the immune system? Yeah, so um, and, and there definitely is a contribution of the environment becoming more dysfunctional as well. Mm. Um, and so the challenge there is, is uh, you know, we we have to reduce these things down to bits and, and how they function in isolation um, and see if we can address. Um, the dysfunction in these T-cells and these killer T-cells. Um, but at the same time, we have to think about how we can create a more supportive environment for these cells right. to operate in. So, um, yeah, that is therein lies the challenge. Is, is it worth me getting my own blood out and freezing it for a later day? I do wonder about that, actually. I think this is going yeah. th- to become a thing. Because there is, like, cell-based therapies that are, yeah. are now coming online. And, and we've we've done experiments where we, we see that the um, these therapies, the aspects of these therapies can be less effective with aged cells. Um, and so potentially you want to buy a bank yourselves for, you know, a bit of uh, security yeah. in your lady. So years. people see a 40-gallon drum in my backyard and they start asking <laughs> questions. They're going to say, no, 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 it's not, not fertiliser, it's blood. It's your serum. <laughs> it's, my, it's my blood I'm keeping. <laughs> Kylie, look, it's a fascinating topic. We've had so many people come in and talk about the immune system over the last few years, mm. usually around the aspects of, of mm. immunotherapy for cancer. So it's good to hear, you know, about the, the literally on the immune system itself. Good luck with the ongoing work. Thanks for chatting to us and um, hopefully uh, we'll learn more and more about this and we won't have to store our blood. We'll just be able to switch it on and off. Yeah. Thank you. Dr. Kylie Quinn is a research fellow from Monash University. We're almost out of time. Uh, you guys you guys all okay after all that? You're looking yeah. aged. Well, no, it's just when you store your blood, think freezer. It's like to your friends. No, not that ice cream, the other yes, ice cream. <laughs> You've got to watch out for that. You, don't um, want to, you do not want to be eating someone else's blood. Uh, or your own, uh, for that matter, I think. Although, you know, hey, we all do it. Uh, Dr. Ray, thanks very much. Thank you. Dr. Catherine, good to see you. Thank you very much. And Dr. Ailey, always lovely to talk about the climate. Thank you. And uh, Liv's been doing our Twitter feed. Uh, we will be back again next week. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in. Remember, science is everywhere, and have a great Sunday.
This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.